Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, this is a very special episode of uh, the Remnant. Um, as uh, longtime listeners know, every now and then, when I have to get my fix on. Um, conservative intellectual history nerdery. Um, my go-to guy to um, do this with is Matt Continetti, my colleague at the American Enterprise Institute. And he is finally, after years of me somewhat puckishly asking him, are you done yet? Are you done yet? He's actually done. His new book, The Right, The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism, is out. Um, I think this will come out, if not on pub date, right around pub date. Um, and I want to say up front, I always joke about how, I don't joke, it's actually deadly serious, but um, I always crow about how this podcast moves books, and I, I certainly hope that this um, does exactly that. Um, I highly recommend the book. I have uh, friendly uh, points of departure from it, which we're going to get into today, but if I were a normal um, intellectually engaged or politically engaged American who wanted to know the history of American conservatism, I would probably say that this is the best book that they could get. Um, I, I only say probably because I have a certain tribal loyalty to the um, George Nash book, the American Conservative Intellectual Movement since 1945, and we will talk about that. Um, but uh, the Times have cried out for a very long time for a generally accessible, mainstream, soup-to-nuts history of American conservatism. And um, uh, and this is it. And it's very good. And um, I learned a lot of things from it. Um, it is the most marked-up book I've had, I've read in a while. I also, as the, the people in the, the studio can attest, this is the first remnant I, have, I think I have ever done where I've, I've, I've prepared copious notes, which makes me feel a little awkward because it's not my normal style. Normally, the paper in front of me is just full of doodles. So um, with that, uh, Matthew Connetti, welcome to The Remnant. Welcome Thanks. back to The Remnant. Thanks for having me, Jonah. It's good to be here in uh, Dispatch HQ. I've never been here before. It's exciting. It's amazing, the empire you've built. Yeah, it's, tell me about it. The, uh, um, I hope the harem girls treated you well. <laughs> harem people, sorry. <laughs> the, the, the buglers who announced my entryway. I mean, that was a nice touch. And the, uh, the floral arrangements all, all over the, the office. It's and, very impressive. And the miniature giraffes are great, too. All right, so... Um, Normally, when I do this with a person who's written a book, I say as you know, as a favor, "What's your book about?" But I think a book called "The Right: The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism" that uh, kind of comes across. And and note to readers, I am I will try. I'm not going to go full putt-orts and try to explain everything that you might not know that we make reference to. But I'll try to be <laughs> a, a little helpful on this. Um, but I actually want to get in the weeds a bit, and that's what this <clears throat> is for. Um, so instead, anyway, instead of asking you what's your book about, what were you trying to do with this book? Uh, well, uh, it's funny you mentioned uh, George Nash uh, and his book, uh, The Conservative Intellectual Movement in America. Um, uh, in some ways, uh, when I started with this project, I was attempting to update Nash. Um, as I was writing the book, though, I realized that, you know, George Nash's book came out of his uh, Ph.D. thesis. And it's a it's a very dissertation like book. There's a lot of footnotes. It gets into the weaves, uh, weeds. It's heavily quotatious. Um, and I thought in order to explain some of the intellectual history better, I needed to talk about the political context in which it operated. So the book eventually turned into a synthesis of intellectual and political history aimed at a 
20-year-old, uh, like the college students I teach, um, who is just becoming aware of the world of ideas and their intersection with politics and public policy and needs a place to start. And so in a way, I was kind of um, writing this book for myself when I was a sophomore in college and came across a writer named Jonah Goldberg, uh, who was, was very... Um, puckish <laughs> and inspiring for me. And, um, and so th that's, that's the audience. Okay. So here's, all right. So there's that great scene in Barcelona where the guy says, I understand what the, the, the subtext is. It's this hidden or implied meaning. Um, but like what's, what's above the subtext. And the other guy goes, that's the text. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I think that description works very well and is apt for what the text is. But um, if I was looking for a subtext, which I'm, you know, I, I cannot read a book. I, I know this stuff too well to not yeah, like sure. I know look for doing. the subtext, right? Yeah. And so part of the subtext that I suspect is in there, and I'm curious what you think of this, is, um, um, and sometimes it's in the text, but is that the argument about what is conservatism, right? Which among conservatives is basically synonymous with is what is the correct position, right? You know, it's like when Marxists argue about what does Marxism mean, what they're really doing is arguing about what is the correct position to hold. And when conservatives argue about what conservatives mean, it's sort of the same thing. And part of the point of the book, or at least one of the recurring themes of the book, um, is that it's kind of a movable feast and that the definition changes with this political context that you're talking about and that there have been, for over 100 years, a, a number of waves of different, quote-unquote, new rights. I tried to count all the new rights in the book um, uh, that claim that they have the new, correct, future-oriented, whatever, de or past-oriented um, definition of conservatism and that it's an endlessly contested thing. Mm -hmm. And one of the most, and we've talked about this off mic before, one of the most annoying things about a lot of so-called new right people is the way in which they claim to in the way in which they have no idea that a lot of their arguments have have been heard and made and either accepted or rejected before they think that they have stumbled upon some new thing by questioning the suppositions of conservatism does that sound about right it does i think there are uh, at least three new rights uh discussed in the book um, I've been studying this topic uh, since really I came to Washington and, and I began rereading the back issues of the Weekly Standard and National Review and then moved on to other conservative publications um, from there. But the real impetus of writing the book uh, began around 2016 when the idea of who was a conservative, what was conservatism, what was the relation between the conservative intellectuals and the grassroots conservatives, uh, all of these questions became very real. And uh, so I thought that going back in history would illuminate them. And so, right, that, that's a, perhaps a subtextual uh, theme of the book is this ongoing debate. That's why we have in the subtitle the idea of a war. I mean, right. It's not really a war, but it was. It's a battle of ideas. Um, so how come you don't offer, not that I saw, your own definition of conservatism? Mainly because I wanted this book to be uh, uh, accessible to as many types of readers as possible. So it was, in, while th there are some parts, mainly toward the end, that are more personal and polemical, uh, this book is unlike most of my writing, which is, um, you know, a political commentary and analysis where um, my opinions and views are at the forefront. Um, this book is... Uh, kind of a work of scholarship maybe heck it is a work of scholarship <laughs> i know i know I that i spent 10 years on it right i know that uncomfortable yeah, feeling yeah. <laughs> when yeah. people when when you have to sort of say that but yeah i hear right. you. you know so um so i kind of left my own views out i think they are implied for sure beginning with the um epigraph from abraham lincoln and um kind of mentioned a few uh in a few places where i talk about the um distinctiveness of american conservatism and constitutionalism but really, I wanted to let all of the other characters kind of come to, come to the uh, foreground and uh, discuss their ideas rather than my own. So 
do you have a working definition of conservative? I'm, I'm not putting you on this, trying to put you on the spot, but like yeah. this will come up more and more. In well, <laughs> I begin, <laughs> I begin from the place that American conservatism is different from European conservatism in the institutions that it seeks to defend. And so, whereas European conservatism coming out of the ancien regime is attempting to defend the monarchy, the estates, the established church. Well, America doesn't have those things. So what are American conservatives attempting to defend? And I really go back, go to the idea that for American conservatives, the, uh, the crux is the constitution and the political institutions it established. And this is a running theme that we can see, uh, beginning where, uh, an idea, the idea of a self-conscious conser- American conservatism takes hold, which is during the New Deal. So if every conservative is reacting to a revolution, the revolution against which American conservatives were reacting was the New Deal. And what they're trying to do is preserve an idea of American constitutionalism that preceded the New Deal against the ideas of progressivism and living constitutionalism that came after it. I still think that's a good operating definition of American conservatism to go to recur to the founding, to recur to the original meaning of the Constitution and the, the defense of the uh, political institutions um, that it established. So, so I, this is something we've talked about before, and it's something like so. The place where I have, and we're going to get to it towards the end. Uh, my biggest bones of contention with you. Um, you know, you start in the 1920s. You've just wrote this piece in the Wall Street Journal, which very much made me want to pull a Will Smith and slap you and say, <laughs> uh, get that name out of your mouth when you compare Donald Trump to Calvin Coolidge. Um, and we can return to that as well. Um, but just sort of as a, hist- as a historical question, um, and trust me, we will get back to that. But as a historical question, why does the, because I can't get a clear answer to this in my own head. Why does the rec- a recognizable conservatism, we can argue about what was going on in the 20s in a bit, but I agree with you that the stuff that we would sort of recognize as the beginning of the conservative movement really comes in response to the New Deal. Um, um, you know, the American Enterprise Association is founded in the 1930s, and you get into all that, and um, um, which then became the American Enterprise Institute, where we are both I'm very happy to be um, scholars, but um, as the worldwide treasurer of the international uh, Woodrow Wilson haters club, I would argue and have argued at great length (laughs) that almost everything that we saw in the New Deal begins with Woodrow Wilson. Mm -hmm. And yet you don't have a recognizable conservatism that comes out of it. In fact, many of the recognizable conservatives in the 1930s including Hoover, um, who I think became a conservative later, (laughs) not really when he was president and certainly not when he was in the Wilson administration. Um, But a lot of the people who joined National Review, who were part of the recognizable conservative movement, were not making recognizably conservative arguments in response to Wilson. What was it about that period that, that didn't galvanize a conservative response that did with FDR? I think there were glimmers of a consti- constitutionalism uh, in opposition to Wilson during the Wilson era. But uh, one reason I didn't start uh, in uh, 1912 or before was uh, it, during that time, progressivism was kind of bipartisan. in the air. It was yeah. bipartisan. So I wanted to begin in the 1920s where we could kind of see the Republican Party rejecting the philosophy of progressivism, which got into how. Uh, it became the anti-progressive, anti-New Deal party in the 1930s and a home for kind of this conservatism which opposed the New Deal. Um, so because it was this, uh, the progressive miasma was so overpowering prior to the 1920s, I, I thought it would be good uh, to start with Harding's inauguration. Also, I think many Americans viewed the Wilson presidency in its immediate aftermath as almost an aberration. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't want to repeat that. Let's, Harding and Coolidge are offering what they called normalcy. Right. And that's the way that we should be doing things. Um, and so uh, Wilson was, uh, he's the backdrop to, to that first chapter. 
But I thought to pick up the narrative um, in 1921 was the place to start. And also, just uh, you know, as a writer, you sometimes just look for kind of gimmicks. Uh, mm-hmm. So having 100-year period yeah. was, no, was pretty uh, good frame, I think, and limited the amount of uh, stress that I had to deal with in my own life. Well, also, I'll, I'll just say, you know, as a as a as a scholarly matter. It is vexatious trying to figure out what the hell is going on intellectually during the progressive era. You know, um, arguments that you would think would count as status or left wing are made by people that are recognizably sort of right wing and vice versa. And there's just a lot of resistance to the categories that we're comfortable with in that period. I mean, if, if you read Gabriel Coco, you know, Woodrow Wilson's a conservative if you and, and he kind of ran as the conservative alternative to TR. But but there's no way by our standards that Wilson's a, a conservative. Um, all right. So let's get back to the definition thing for a second. I mean, cause I, I, I grant you definitions are hard. Um, and there was a reason when Buckley was asked to write one, he wrote notes. He titled it notes towards an yeah. empirical definition of conservatism, reluctantly and apologetically given, right? I mean, he did, did not he, he want to really defend it. He quoted Richard Weaver. Right. Um, which, and the Richard Weaver quotation he used in that essay is indecipherable yeah um so yeah so buckley had a hellish time trying to define what it meant to be a conservative but a quote which i had not seen until your book um that buckley gave in the 1960s which was uh he says the historical responsibility of the conservatives is altogether clear it is to defend what is best in america at all costs against any enemy foreign or domestic now that's not a definition but as a description of a sort of like an orientation, I think it's about as close to my understanding of what conservatism should be. And, I, and so to that end, you know, was Lewis Hartz and Lionel Trilling right that basically the American, the American political tra- tradition simply is liberalism and, you know, uh, Russell Kirk's efforts notwithstanding, um, conservatives in America are essentially conserving an American revolution? Uh, this is a very vigorous debate that's been going on for some time. I get into it a little bit in the book. Uh, no, I know. I, I, and I'm, about, not, I'm, I'm not asking you these questions as if you don't address these things. I'm just right. trying to elucidate yeah, your yeah, position. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, good luck, because I'm not sure where <laughs> what my position is. Uh, that's a result of this uh, doing this research. So Hartz is saying that uh, the American political tradition is fundamentally classically liberal or related to that. That's, you know. Trilling saying something different um, in his book, The Liberal Imagination in 1950, he's almost lamenting the lack of what he describes as a serious conservatism. Um, my, my view, and I think it comes clear by the end of the right, is that uh, there is something uh, classically liberal about America that deserves protection and defense. And so if you are an American conservative and you are going to take on Buckley's task of defending what is best in the American experiment, well, then the idea of individual rights, the rule of law, quality of opportunity, all of these ideas which we associate with classical liberalism have to be part of it. Now, there is another tradition coming out of the founding of civic republicanism, mm-hmm. with, you know, which has more about duties as opposed to rights, more about the common good than the private interest. And I think that we have to find space for that tradition as well. Um, but what I find with many people who emphasize the civic Republican tradition is they're not willing to give me space for right. classical liberalism, right? right? It's it's an either or proposition where in reality it should be a both and. And in truth, I think slightly heavier on the classical liberal side uh, when we look at the founding and um, all the, the documents um, uh, that accompany it. So just for the edification of our readers who are our listeners who, you know, we haven't lost. In fact, they're, they're swelling <laughs> thank into you this for, podcast. Thank you for staying with us. Um, oh, it's going to get so much darkier. <laughs> um, how do you define civic republicanism? Well, this idea that, um, you know, uh, the goal of the polity is to instill virtue in its citizens, right? And so virtue is to be prioritized over freedom. Um, and that people should, uh, a person's um, self-fulfillment is actually through participation in politics rather than saying that there's a sphere around the individual uh, through which politics cannot penetrate, right? Uh, so that's kind of how I, 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 I keep civic republicanism in the back of my head. 
Okay, so that's a perfect setup for uh, this softball question. Um, what was fusionism? <laughs> yeah, right. No, no, it's a, I felt the spirit of Brent Bozell behind me as I was uh, defining civic republicanism. So fusionism uh, became the de facto theory behind National Review's political life. Um, and it's kind of an accident. Um, its origins are with Frank Meyer, who was an ex-communist senior editor of National Review, one of the most um, important figures and unsung hero of American conservatism, in my view, who believed that there is no fundamental contradiction between freedom and tradition. Uh, that is, um, social conservatives and economic conservatives both really wanted the same thing. There were two sides of the same coin, and that coin was minted sometime during the uh, ratification debates of the Constitution. <laughs> so he rooted all of this in his idea of the American founding. Well, in one of the many essays uh, that he wrote about this idea, and in, funnily enough, this essay was uh, the, aimed at extreme libertarians right. who were saying they didn't need uh, anti-communists and they didn't need traditionalists. But nonetheless, he wrote this essay um, making these arguments. And his friend, Brent Bozell, William F. Buckley's brother-in-law, who is another senior editor at National Review. Father of the guy who looks like a young Chris Kringle um, who's yes. the founder of the Media Research Center. Yes, but this, uh, so the Brent Bozell I'm discussing is Brent Bozell Jr. Media Research Center, Brent Bozell is the third. Mm -hmm. um, he, he attacked uh, the piece and of course National Review, uh, especially at that time, was a kind of just a malay, uh, a, a constant argument um, in its pages. And he said, you know, Frank Meyer, you're totally wrong. Uh, you're trying to fuse these positions together. The truth is virtue is the goal of politics, not freedom. And you don't need to be uncoerced to be virtuous. Um, this is the roots of, in many ways, our debates today between, um, say, National Review conservatives and uh, figures on the post-liberal or uh, slash nationalist right. Um, Bozell lost that debate within the pages of National Review. His journey took him away from National Review and into his own magazine called Triumph, which I think he very accurately described as a radical Christian journal, not mm -hmm. a conservative one, a radical Christian one. But for National Review, the uh, Meyer position became dominant, and Meyer and the National Review editors were like, okay, fine, we're fusionists. It was so, so be it. Kind of like later the neocons would say, if, all right, Fine, we're neoconservatives. Right. We'll it, own the label. It was another label that was intended sort of as an insult and yeah, that people it, bought into. You, you, you appropriate it for right. yourself. And I think that this idea that, in fact, even while that there, there are theoretical problems with linking the defense of capitalism with the defense of tradition, in truth, for most American conservatives, in practice, it works out fine. Right. And they, this is just how they live their lives. And they don't see any inherent contradiction between these positions. And this, this fusion has been more or less the mainstream of American conservatism um, ever since. And in fact, actually, even before Meyer identified it. Um, I think you, you can look at Coolidge, for example, and see a fusionist, someone who is both pro-market and pro-traditional um, values. Um, Meyer, in fact, didn't think he was coming up with anything new. Right. He thought he was simply describing how conservatives thought and acted and then adding a layer of theory, um, probably from his, you know, his training in Marxism. Uh, he was adding a layer of theory over that. Um, and uh, so that's how I define fusionism. Yeah. So, I mean, you actually ran through two of the follow-up questions I was going to ask. Um, it's yeah. so weird doing this with written questions. Um, my own view about fusionism is pretty much tracks with yours, is that it's a flawed theoretical framework in part because it was not intended as a theoretical right. framework, right? The, it, was, it was turned into a theory by its critics. Um, but it's, you know, this idea, this idea when framed humbly that, you know, uh, Virtue cannot be compelled. It can only be freely chosen. Otherwise, it's not virtuous, right? If, you, if I put a gun to your head and say, help that little old lady across the street, 
I may be doing something bad too, but you're certainly not, you don't get any points for uh, me bossing you around to do the right thing, right? And I, I think that's a useful, I don't know if you want to call it a heuristic, but it's a useful rule of thumb when you think about politics and, and, and how you inculcate virtue. But at the same time, like, yeah, of course government has some place at the margins to make sure that people live right and do right and all that kind of stuff. And it's better if it's done at the most local level possible and all these kinds of caveats. And that this is a point that you make in the book that had not really occurred to me, which is that Myers fusionism does not really account for, I wish I'd written it down the quote, but like doesn't account for the sort of Burkean little platoon s subsidiarity and in mm -hmm. lower institutions, which I had not really occur occurred to me. Um, um, is that a, I, I kind of feel now that I think back on it, that Nisbet actually, that was part of his criticism of it or was, am I wrong about that? Um, I know I, Nisbet wrote about fusionism, um, yeah. um, but I can't remember now. He, uh, uh, I think Nisbet came down on the side that tradition and, um, market economics could work together, but it would, he, but he certainly thought it was more, uh, that it was a greater tension than Meyer did. I think the way that I would look at it is, um, for Meyer and the National Review conservatives in the post-war era, it was really a question about order versus freedom. And for their view, uh, there was too much order in society. Mm -hmm. so it was You had communist tyrannies. You had a centralized state in, in the United States. Um, these kind of Leviathan welfare states that were beginning to regulate everything. And for Meyer, who was, you know, kind of, leaned on the libertarian side of the equation, he was saying, look, we need to emphasize freedom now. But he does say, in other circumstances, you might need to emphasize order. And so the fusionist idea was that you have to just balance between these goods, recognizing the importance of each. And I do think that, um, like many smaller libertarians, Meyer sometimes just assumed the existence of the family, assumed the existence of children and their moral formation, assumed that there would be a place for uh, relig religious life and civic association, mainly because when he was writing, all those things were there, right? right, right. And, and the threat he identified was the threat from the centralized state, and in its most horrific form, the threat of the centralized communist state. Yeah. I mean, I think the best defense of Meyer's fusionism, rather than what people want it to be or claimed or what Bozell claimed it to be or what the sort of post-liberal types claim it to be is that he's fundamentally just arguing that American culture is a liberal culture and it, 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 it amplifies a liberal tradition about the individual and individualism and the separation of church and state, you know, which goes back to Jesus saying, you know, render unto Caesar what's, what is Caesar's and give me the rest or whatever. Um, and uh, I'm kidding. I know the actual quote, um, but um, uh, and so he's basically saying ours is a liberal tradition, a liberal culture. I mean, with lots of caveats, right, and all that kind of thing. And I think that's the part that today's critics of fusionism don't understand. If you read Deneen, if you read, um, you know, I, I guess for a mule, um, that crowd or Hazoni, um, they seem to think that that. The, that liberal, quote unquote, liberal America is basically just this thing that springs forth from the brow of John Locke and is this artificial imposition on our culture. When in reality, we're just a very liberal culture, not in the progressive sense, but in this sort of don't tread on me, you're not the boss of me sense. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that was the tradition, that English tradition that the founders sort of put on steroids that sort of defines America and you could erase Locke from the historical record. Um, you know, one of the things when I was working on suicide, of the West that really astounded me was that while Locke was often quoted, um, um, by the founders. And I think Jefferson said he was one of the three greatest men who ever lived or something like that. Um, or maybe that's, maybe that's Newton. doesn't matter. Um, People didn't go around quoting the second treatise on government. They were quoted, they were talking about it as epistemology, right? That was, 
that shattered the divine right of kings and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and Locke was kind of like this guy they quoted because it's sort of like Abraham Lincoln quotes. There's, there's always a good one available or, or Mark Twain quotes and they come, comes up in pamphlets and, and that kind of thing. But in the constitutional convention, Locke just, just doesn't come up really. Yeah. And um, Montesquieu was a more, in terms of the mechanisms of the constitution, probably more influential. Yeah. Um, but the simple fact is, is we have a, we have a liberal culture and you could convince people of all sorts of theoretical ideas. You're not going to get sort of the, the sort of rugged individualist tradition out of America because you've convinced people Locke was a poopy head or something. <laughs> right. Right. Well, it gets to this point uh, that we were discussing earlier about kind of the multiple multiple strands of the American founding. I mean, there is a Lockean strand. There is that civic republicanism I mentioned. There's also just the Protestantism and the religious right. background of the American founding, which tended to be anti-hierarchical and anti-monarchist, right? right. And um, that, that theology, I think, is something that um, eventually critics like Bozell Jr. are going to run up against because right. he's coming out of a Catholic tradition. Right. And National Review was a Catholic magazine. I mean, in many ways, that was Ayn Rand's main criticism of it. Was this, it was too Catholic. She wrote a letter to Barry Goldwater telling him, don't, don't read National Review. It's too religious. It's a Catholic magazine. The, the point from Meyer that I would stress is, and, and you gesture at it, there is something unique about the American Revolution. The American Revolution happens prior to the French Revolution which is where we get our categories right. of conservatism and liberalism, right. right? So our revolution was prior to that. And he said that, look, the idea of having a morality separated from, um, uh, or rather uh, having a, a morality without a religious background to it, or uh, that wasn't there. Uh, for, the, for the founding generation, he would say, uh, economic freedom and uh, religious uh, virtue were f- were fused. I'll use that word again, mm. because it hadn't. We hadn't gone through the French Revolution and the uh, disruptions of the 19th century yet. And so he was recalling American conservatives of the 20th century to look back to the American uh, founding of the 18th century. And that's kind of where uh, I think our orientation has been um, ever ever since. We look to the founding for uh, inspiration and guidance. So, like, one of the things that really pops out in the book, which is, um, you know, it's sort of like when the Constitutional Convention was competing, they designed the presidency with Washington in mind, right? Because Washington was just a hoss. Everyone respected him. They didn't worry about Washington being a tyrant. Um, They knew he was this upstanding guy. And so... um, his personal virtues kind of informed the job description in a way. And it's a slightly strained analogy because no one wrote the job description for William F. Buckley, but it's a very similar thing, right? It's like (laughs) the reason, as you sort of talk about in the book, you know, fusionism became a thing in part because it was kind of a useful technique for Buckley to define who was in the tent and who was outside of the tent, Hmm. you know? Um, And so Bozell goes outside of the tent because he crosses some line. Ayn Rand goes outside of the tent because she crosses some line. And then, but the space between the lines was lots of anti-statism, lots of libertarianism and lots of traditionalism. And as long as you didn't go beyond the borders, you were okay. Mm -hmm. Um, So talk about that a little bit about Buckley. Do you think we would have, I'm sure we'd have something called conservatism, but like, how much of conservatism do you think is really up until say five years ago, at least um, really just the fruit of, of one Mel Buckley's personality? Uh, yeah. I mean, you can't write the history of American conservatism without um, talking about William F. Buckley Jr. A reviewer of my book, I think in the Washington post called him the book's protagonist, if not exactly hero. Um, but he's certainly the, the main figure for, you know, two thirds of the book. Um, Buckley is important in so many different ways. Uh, the first way is uh, the example of his personality. People wanted to be William F. Buckley Jr. Yeah. And if you couldn't be Bill Buckley, you wanted to be around him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a sense of fun uh, that just accompanied him wherever he went. He, 
he was an aspirational figure in that uh, he could go up against the best that the left had to offer and, if not win, uh, at least hold his own against them. Uh, he's important institutionally, as I get into the book. I mean, not only did he create National Review, which was really the place for American conservatism for decades, he helped create uh, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Uh, he helped create the Young Americans for Freedom. He, ha he had some participation bet before he was frozen out in uh, Barry Goldwater's uh, mm -hmm. candidacy. So he not only exemplified the ideas of American conservatism in the 20th century, but he also created the institutions uh, where those ideas could find purchase and safety. Um, and then there's this uh, other function that you mentioned, which is uh, to use a phrase that I quote uh, several times in the book from Pat Buchanan, Buckley set the limits of permissible dis dissent. Right. Right. And he established who could be an American conservative with an eye toward not alienating people, uh, specifically people who just are not, you know, tuned into politics and might just get a little bit, you know, freaked out when they hear lunatic ideas, whether they're coming from the right or the left. And this was important for Buckley. And so he set himself the great task of building fences around his version of American conservatism uh, beginning in the late 1950s uh, and extending through the 1960s and, um, and early 70s that were very effective for, for, um, and held for, for a good deal of time. And, and so that's his, the other uh, way in which he's important. And finally, there's just um, the, the, he was so prolific. Uh, it was hard, it's hard to escape him because he was writing this syndicated column three, time, three times a week beginning in 1962. He wrote all these books. He wrote some books twice. He wrote, <laughs> he wrote Cruising Speed twice. He wrote Airborne, I think maybe three times actually. Uh -huh. um, so there's just this constant output um, that made him a, a central figure because everybody was talking about what Buckley was doing. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things you never got to, did you ever get to meet Buckley? Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah, I met him a couple times. Um, you know, one of the, I've talked about this a bunch on here, but I was very lucky that when I started National Review, he was still, I mean, he wasn't a day-to-day -day editor guy, but he was still very much an active presence in, in our world. And um, it was, one of the most remarkable things about the guy was, I, I often say that, you know, when people ask me, what was he like? I, I'll often say, you know, look, properly speaking, good manners aren't knowing like what fork to use and that kind of stuff. It's making people feel respected. And I have never met anybody who had better manners, if that's the definition, because right. when he listened to you, you're like, holy crap, this guy's really listening to me. You know, there was something... He had this magical ability of doing that, of, of actually like engaging you. And I used to run into people all across the country who had stories about how Bill would, you know, one guy told me a story about how he had some exchange of letters with him and then, um, and then sort of forgot about it. And then like two years later, when Bill was giving a speech in Indiana or someplace like that, he had his secretary send this guy a note saying, hey, Mr. Buckley's going to be in, in Muncie or wherever, you know, you should go, he's reserved a ticket for you. And, and then when the guy got there, not only did he have a ticket waiting for him, it was at the head table. <laughs> it was like next to Buckley yeah. and Buckley would spend time talking to him instead of the governor or the Senator or whatever. And that personal aspect about movement building is just, it's so difficult to convey how important that was the right. sort of personal loyalty that he got out of people. Um, that said, we should acknowledge and talk about for a second, he was, I mean, he was wrong about a f quite a few things, um, as anybody who writes and thinks and talks that much will be. But one of the things he was most famously wrong about was civil rights. Um, um, why don't you just sort of talk us through that problem? Sure. Well, uh, one of the paradoxes of the American right in the 20th century uh, is that um, the right kind of defined itself, not just in opposition to the New Deal, but then in opposition to the New Deal's inheritor, 
who was a Republican president mm-hmm. named Dwight Eisenhower. So the American conservative movement is formed in opposition to the most popular Republican president in, in decades, right. right? And the first Republican president in 20 years right. when Eisenhower is elected. And remember, Democrats wanted Eisenhower too, right? It was just like Eisenhower yeah. decided to be a Republican. Yeah. And Eisenhower also stood in the tradition of civil rights republicanism, capital R, right? not lowercase r. And he supported civil rights bills in 57 and 59. And part of the National Review's opposition to him was on the basis of civil rights. And uh, Buckley, uh, who had Southern roots, um, was uh, the prime mover in uh, organizing National Review's opposition to civil rights and wrote in particular one um, infamous essay in 1957 uh, saying, making the case uh, against civil rights bills on on cultural grounds, Mm -hmm. as opposed to the more typical conservative opposition to civil rights legislation in the 60s, which was on constitutional grounds. So this was Buckley's, I think, uh, worst moment. Um, And also a little bit odd because it kind of led to this idea that Republicans were vociferous opponents of civil rights when they actually weren't. Um, uh, They provided most of the votes, in fact, um, for these bills. It was, but because of the importance of Buckley and the conservative movement to the la- latter half of the 20th century, we tend to telescope things and we associate Buckley's position with the, the whole of the Republican Party or even the whole of the conservative movement. I mean, one, one thing I discuss in the book is um, there were people who may have joined the right in the 1950s and early 1960s, but for the position. Right on civil rights held by National Review and some, some of the Southern agrarians. And those, I, those are the followers of Leo Strauss, say, mm-hmm. um, who did believe in civil rights. Um, and those are also some of the early neoconservatives were you know, already trending kind of in a conservative direction. But for them, the roadblock really was civil rights or equality of opportunity um, that, that was um, included in the, in the uh, 1964 civil rights bill. So... Um, this was uh, this was Buckley held this view, and I think it's hurt conservatism in the long run. All right, so I want to come back to that in a little bit when we talk about Nixon, but um, might as well get to this here. So you write about when Buck when Buckley ran for mayor. Um, Buckley had uncovered quite by accident the future electoral base of the Republican Party: white voters without college degrees who belonged to traditional blue collar unions, resented perceived liberal snobbery and disliked the result of liberal governance. This discovery put Buckley in an odd position. He was an ambivalent ambivalent populist. In fact, he rejected the label, but he could not deny that the quote-unquote establishment that National Review poked, prodded, and lampooned was liberal in outlook. In his first two books, he argued that more popular control would improve the university and rid government of communists. In his 1963 collection, Rumbles Left and Right, he wrote that he would sooner live in a society governed by the first 2,000 names in the Boston Telephone Directory than a society governed by the, two, by the 2,000 faculty members of Harvard University. A quote I wish did not exist. Um, had he really meant it, or was Buckley's anti-elitism really just his anti-liberalism in democratic disguise? It was a question he never really answered. So, what's your answer? Was he a populist? Was he not a populist? He was not a populist. Um, and that became clearer as he grew older and um, especially with the, I guess uh, we haven't identified them, but I think in the second of my three new rights uh, actually go after him. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was clear he was not a populist. He opposed, we, we haven't touched on this, but uh, he resisted movements on the right that wanted to embrace George Wallace. Right. He always opposed that. Um, he, wa- he, he was a, a kind of, um, I, I've used him the description insider-outsider to talk about William F. Buckley when I teach this. He was a man uh, of wealth. He was uh, a man who had attended Yale, so the finest schools. He used summer as a verb. He was summer as a verb. <laughs> winter, sh- we're going to Stad every right. winter. Um, you know, with uh, David Niven. When I first came into his orbit, it was during one of those uh, trips to Stad he'd take with David Niven and uh-huh. 
you know, Arthur, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, and then he'd write a book, uh, you know, in between ski trips. Um, so he was definitely an insider, and he had access to all of these ins- liberal institutions, like toward the end of his life in particular, he'd write for the New Yorker, you know, um, or the Atlantic, or the... But he was also an outsider, and at beginning, beginning from his youth. You have to remember that he's a devout Roman Catholic in a world basically governed by Protestants. And he is a laissez-faire capitalist right. in, a, in a time where that view was so fringe. People are like, you know, who is this guy? So he did find that the, the people most receptive to his arguments did not share his social background. Right. And so it, as I, as in that passage you quote, uh, talking about the 1965 mayoral campaign, um, I, I think it's fascinating that Buckley went in to one show that not all Republicans were like John Lindsay, who was the um, liberal uh, congressman who was running for, for mayor of New York. And two, he wanted to show that after Barry Goldwater went down to defeat in 1964, conservatives still had ideas mm-hmm. and they could still kind of rally to the cause. What he ended up doing was defeat the Democrat. Right. He took votes from the, the comptroller, Abe Beam, because he... His his most favorable audience were the voters in the outer boroughs who had been kind of the backbone of the New Deal coalition. Um, and now, beginning in the 1960s, these voters start moving to the right and to the GOP. So um, I wish I, well, I'm, look, I love Bill. I'm so sick of that Boston phone book quote. Um, it is, it's an outlier. Yeah. I mean, I think that's important to say. Like, that is the one quote. Yeah, it comes from uh, an article. It's collected in the '63 collection. It comes from an article in the late '50s, um, and he never disavowed it um, because there is this. Uh, one of the themes of the right is this inherent dynamic between populism and elitism that just courses throughout the last hundred years. And so there were times where one would be very welcoming of a popular sentiment because the, the public has identified. Uh, a problem that liberal elites are not addressing or are actually addressing counterproductively. Um, but there are other moments in Buckley's life and in the history of the right where um, the dangers of populism become apparent. And Buckley didn't get all those right uh, either. Yeah. And, uh, we haven't talked about Joe McCarthy. No, no, no. We're going to get to okay. McCarthy. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so um, uh, the I, I, a quote I had not seen before, which I wish I had known five years ago, was from Frank Meyer, who who I entirely agree with, which I got from your book, which was that populism is the radical opposite of conservatism, yeah. right? Um, and you were saying that in the context of Wallace. And so I, I guess this is a good point to sort of pause and go meta, right? I, I am, I mean, you didn't call your book the conservatives. You called it the right. I agree with you that the tyranny of the seating chart of the French estates general <laughs> is very frustrating, right? Because in the American, on the Anglo tradition, um, left and right in Parliament don't line up the way the Ancien regime and the right. the, the philosophers lined up, right? I mean, the 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 I believe the rights the right side of British Parliament were the people who were in agreement with the Prime Minister, and the left side were the people who were in opposition, and it would switch depending on who the Prime Minister is, right? And so it's a, just a completely weird way that we have sort of weird thing that we have bought into. I'm not saying it doesn't illuminate things, but it also obscures a lot of things, and so. I agree entirely with Meyer that populism is is antithetically opposed to conservatism, but it is not antithetically opposed to right wingness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I guess you know, part of the question is, how do you disaggregate what the right means versus what conservatism means? Sure. Um, so. Uh, I, I, what I wanted to do is, in calling the book The Right, is suggest that there's this whole galaxy of uh, figures and institutions that oppose the left. Uh, and that we can, can define the left, you know, pretty easily, I think, uh, from, you know, radicalism on, on the one hand to kind of modern liberalism on the other, the progressive idea, mm-hmm. right? Uh but within this galaxy of the right, there are real differences of opinion. It becomes much harder to say what a true 
conservative, quote unquote, really is, because you have people like Buckley, uh, who with this fusionist position, but you also have figures who exist on the right, but who hate Buckley and who think Buckley is part of the problem. He's too liberal. Um, so I wanted to just kind of widen the lens through which we're viewing this uh, uh, phenomenon. Uh, and I called it the right. So what is conservative? Again, I just kind of recur to this idea that I think you first introduced me to um, uh, via Samuel Huntington, mm -hmm. which is conservatism is essentially situational. Right. It depends on the context. And in the American context, I th the conservatives are the ones who are discussing what Buckley mentioned in that quote. How do we hold up America and the best of the American political tradition against its enemies? Um, the right may actually include groups that are opposed to the American political tradition that right. that don't that think the American political tradition is corrupt. It's, you know, um, who have much broader goals um, and more radical goals, and so that's that's how I draw the distinction. I'm with the conservatives. Mm -hmm. I think we need to protect and defend America, uh, but there are people uh, on the right who are still on the right disagree with me about the object of our defense. So isn't part of the problem um, that conservatism, first of all, needs some institutions, right? It, it can't just be the, you know, the expressions of popular will manifesting themselves you know, at, on election day. There have to be institutions that guide and instruct, um, that take direction from voters, but also give some direction to voters, right? And so isn't part of the problem that political parties, you know, conservatism, it's not fair to say conservatism just stands for don't just do something, sit there. But there's a certain aspect to it, right, is that the conservative, you know, Calvin Coolidge, praise be upon him, you know, said that if you see 10 problems rolling down a hill towards you, do nothing and nine will fall into a ditch before they reach you. Um, I, I'm very sympathetic to that understanding and conservatism. But political parties, which are very good at feeding off of populism, are not very good at feeding off of that conservative sentiment. And so you're going to have um, this, this tension. And so when the, the Goldwaterites and the Buckleyites and these guys actually get control of the Republican Party, were it not for Ronald Reagan, who we'll get to, obviously, um, um, they don't actually have a don't have a theory of what to do except to undo what the other side has done. Oh, and Goldwater makes that explicit in Conscience of a Conservative in 1960. He says, I'm, I'm not here to pass laws. I'm here to repeal them. Right. It's, it's, it's a negative agenda. Um, uh, Edward Banfield, the so, uh, political uh, scientist, once said that his ideal ask of a politician was, what have you undone for me lately? Right? <laughs> but of course, that's completely contrary to the way that the American political system operates. Thus the dilemma, because uh, the only way that the American conservatives were going to be in any position to change the world in ways that they would like would be the success of the Republican Party. They made that calculation pretty early on. And so before they could change the world, they'd have to change the Republican Party. To do that, though, uh, you have to find a way to awaken. And you don't really awaken it because that's liberals who awaken this populist sentiment, um, this Jacksonian revolt. Uh, but you have to harness it. And um, sometimes that succeeds. And a lot of times it doesn't. Um, yeah, so uh, you write about. So in the book, I have in notation a whole in a lot of margins my shorthand for this this theme of um the recurrence of these certain arguments and how the fights over trump how everything is prologue to the fights over trump right and i'm going to get to whether that's the right way to frame the book towards the end but um you know one of the examples there where i wrote this in the margins was about the manhattan declaration which was this uh, where Nixon basically opened up relations with China. It pissed off all the anti-communists. And Buckley and a bunch of other people, you can remind me who else signed it, issued this Manhattan Declaration saying this is a bad idea. And then you write, 
the limited reach of the Manhattan Declaration was an unwelcome reminder to conservatives that the Republican Party remained the only viable um, and unreliable political instrument for their ideas. So why don't you just sort of, what are some other, uh, you can talk about the Manhattan Declaration as well, but like what are some other examples of how conservatives, you know, were frustrated by the fact that, that the Republican Party and electoral politics have considerations beyond the desires of a bunch of pointy-headed kids at, <laughs> on Lexington, or it wasn't Lexington Avenue back then, but at, at, at National Review, right? Because this is, William Rusher used to always tell the young people, publisher of National Review, politicians will always disappoint you, right? Uh, put not your faith in princes, because the considerations of being a politician are different than the considerations of morons like us who decide to spend our lives right. writing and thinking about what, con what conservatism is. Well, I think it's a recurring theme. I mean, uh, I do kind of mention this in the Reagan chapter too, but there is just a long-running conservative criticism of Ronald Reagan during his eight years. <laughs> Reagan was never conservative or neoconservative enough for, for subwriters. Um, we also saw this with uh, George W. Bush too. Uh, intellectual criticism, say, of the uh, Medicare Part D, right, or some of the steel tariffs that he implemented. Um, for theoretical uh, reasons, conservatives are against them, um, but the president does it anyway. I think the Manhattan 12 is a is an, a very interesting example, though, because uh, one, Nixon and Buckley always distrusted one another. Mm -hmm. you know, long running kind of suspicion uh, between Nixon and the National Review crew. One A. In order to address this mutual suspicion, Nixon hires someone who becomes very important to my story, and that's uh, Pat Buchanan. And Buchanan is initially hired by Richard Nixon in 1965 to serve as a liaison to the Buckleyites, as, as the Nixonites called them. Um, two, Nixon really did push the envelope. This, I mean, you know, you're, re, you're engaging in this triangular diplomacy that causes you to uh, recognize the government of the People's Republic of China, uh, would, at a time when your whole reputation really rests on your uh, anti-communist bona fides, right? Right. And for the anti-communists around National Review, uh, Nixon was—I mean, Nixon was legitimizing a mass murder psychopath in the in the person of Mao. Uh, meanwhile, Nixon was engaging in uh, detente in arms control negotiations with uh, the Soviet Union. And then in the same summer that he announces that he's going to visit Red China, uh, Nixon announces his new economic policy, yeah. you know, appropriately Leninist description, <laughs> where he imposes these wage and price controls and shuts the dollar window. So if you're a conservative of any stripe uh, in the 1970s, you have reason, you have like, what are happening here? Uh, we elected Richard Nixon. Um, we helped elect Richard Nixon, uh, but we're not really seeing much uh, out of his administration. So I was wondering, do you know, because like it, it screams out at me when I see new economic policy, right? Because that's that was what the Bolsheviks had, right? You know, and Nixon had to know that. And there's no way that didn't clang off the ear of Buckleyites, right? <laughs> was that trolling or was that just I'm bad marketing? Sure. <laughs> I think it might have just been bad marketing. Uh, Nixon loved his Treasury Secretary, John Connolly, who had mm -hmm. been a Democrat and then switched. Uh, he was in the car with JFK. Mm -hmm. He was the governor of Texas at, in 1960. So he was in on it. <laughs> uh, the, and, and Nixon just liked the Connolly's, uh, this is another theme that recurs, take charge quality. Mm -hmm. you know, here's what we're going to do. We're going to impose these things and get, bottle up inflation for two years, get you reelected. Um, and I don't know whether that came, the, the phrase came out of those discussions, whether Nixon was trolling or not. But I will say that if you read Milton and Rose Friedman's memoirs, uh, Milton Friedman, of course, says that the imposition of wage and price controls in 1971 was the worst thing Nixon, right. worse than Watergate, right? right? This is the worst thing that Nixon ever did. And uh, as always, everything comes full circle. You see some people on the left today talking about price controls to uh, combat inflation. So, I mean, I, 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 want, I don't want to skip past Goldwater, but we're on Nixon. Um, how are we supposed to think? So, I, you know, cards on the table. I grew up in a uh, alternatingly 
pro-Nixon and anti-anti-Nixon family. Um, my, um, my brother's godfather was Victor Lasky, the guy who wrote It Didn't Start With Watergate, who was a muckraking um, right-wing writer. Um, and uh, my mom was involved in all sorts of chicanery during the Nixon re-elect campaign. She was reporting back to the Nixon campaign what was going on on the McGovern bus, press bus, um, which was a big scandal at the time. And she was wrong to do it. And um, it was a huge problem for my, my dad at the time. Um, and, uh, and as I often mention on this podcast, you know, uh, uh, you know, I first met Pat Buchanan at my bris. Right. Um, and, um, and so I grew up, you know, the first, so I like think literally my first memory is being shushed by my parents during the Watergate hearings. Um, and, and yet I have never personally understood, like, I think it was a classic example of, at least with my parents was that the, the, they hated all of Nixon's enemies. Right. And they had long memories about Helen Gahagan Douglas and all of these kinds of things, which we don't need to get into. Um, that'll be on podcast 17 in the series. Um, but, uh, like I always try to point out to people who think because liberals hated him so much, who think that Nixon was therefore a really right-wing figure. Right. <laughs> but with the exception of the anti-communism stuff, which again, as you just went through, he utterly flipped on its head. Um, but when he was president, you know, Nixon was the, was the last liberal Republican. And he created the EPA. He created a lot of the affirmative action stuff. Um, he had wages and price controls. You can go down a very, very long list. Um, and it strikes me as kind of weird i mean again you can't take things completely out of their historical context but he was i think objectively way to the left of eisenhower and yet the the buckleyites and all those guys hated eisenhower i'm not saying they hated him personally necessarily although some probably did um but they hated what he represented and yet they made peace with nixon i mean how how do you reconcile these things it was a um it was a bitter peace with nixon sure and uh the postscript to the uh, manhattan 12 is that once their favored candidate, this uh, Congressman John Ashbrook, comes in third in New Hampshire uh, in 1972, behind Pete McCloskey, who's a liberal mm -hmm. anti-war Republican. Nixon, right. of course, just dominates. They realize that once again, they're just going to have to um, support Nixon. And this is where we get the phrase most yeah, conservative the, candidate electable. I think it's somewhere it, it's in reference to Nixon. I'm not sure whether it's 68 or 72. Yeah. But um because the alternative in George McGovern and the politics he represented was so bad, right. the, the National Review conservatives could kind of just stomach Nixon. Um, and then, of course, there are people like Stan Evans and Bill Rusher who didn't start supporting Nixon until Watergate. <laughs> Which is very strange. But I think you kind of hit on it when you say that uh, the right will give you a lot of space if you have the right enemies. Yeah. And um, Nixon uh, was the avowed opponent of the professors and um, uh, the liberal establishment of the media, uh, you know, um, kind of deputizing Spiro Agnew to go around the country attacking the liberal media. He, uh, one of my favorite quotes in the book, uh, the right is, uh, Nixon is informed about the riot that took place uh, out, outside the construction zone of the World Trade Center right. between construction workers and uh, anti-war activists and students. And Nixon is told of this and he's quoted saying, I love the hard hats, you know, <laughs> that was his people. And so from from the right's perspective, he was on their side. Right. It's positional mm -hmm. on their side. And the, the enemies are the are our enemies. And so we'll give him the benefit of the doubt while he just tears up our ideology. And of course, you there are obviously. Uh, echoes of that today as well. Yeah, I'm going to skip ahead. Just <laughs> it's a relevant quote um, uh, because there's a lot of similarity between Wallace and Trump, right? Um, and you, I mean, you, you don't hit the reader over the head with the comparison, but if you're looking for it, it comes out. It comes pretty out pretty clearly. clearly. And I remember so James Kilpatrick, um, a conservative columnist, who I was never a huge fan of. Um, um, he writes of of George Wallace. Um, it was precisely the Wallace, okay, this is you writing about Kilpatrick. It was precisely the Wallace style and what it, what it conveyed that many conservatives liked about him. Wallace's conservatism, wrote James Kilpatrick, quote, may lack intellectual depth, 
but it makes up for any absence of philosophy in the hard drive, hard driving ring of a salesman's conviction, unquote. Jeffrey Hart, a professor of literature at Dartmouth, who had become a senior editor at National Review, saw Wallace as a rebel against the norms that liberals used to stifle the right. Quote, Wallace suggests freedom from the conventional taboos, he wrote. Quote, the man says what he thinks. Wouldn't it be fun? Wouldn't it be fun to do that? Even more impressive, he has actually prospered by saying what he thinks by being abrasive and obnoxious. That reverses all of the conventional expectations. Um, that is like it's amazing, right it? out of the, the Trump <laughs> rhetoric, right? Yeah. And then you add in the next paragraph. Whenever National Review criticized Wallace, and I'm very proud that National Review did, readers would send the magazine angry letters and they would cancel subscriptions, right? And it's very much oh, like and, the against Trump Some stuff. of the letter writers that I, I, I quote in the book, you know, they would complain about National Review. They say, well, what about Wallace? You're so mean. First of all, you're mean. Right. You're mean. It's not, not anything he does. It's what you're doing in response, right? You're too mean to Wallace. Poor, poor George and Lurleen. Um, and, but, and then he fights. You see that in their support for yeah. Wallace. He fights. Right. What do you do? You 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 guys are a bunch of sissies there, you know, reading old books, but he fights. All of the tropes are the same. It's 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 quite remarkable. It's jarring. Yeah, no, I agree. Okay, so that was the end of part one. And uh, I don't know where in the conversation we imposed part one, but we realized that we actually went for two hours, so I better um, you know, that we should probably break it up. Uh so we will continue the conversation in the Next exciting installment of the remnants discussion of the right, the hundred year war for American conservatism. And um, so stay tuned for that and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. So this will be part one of 17. Mm. <laughs> Good. All right. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.